Um, the theme this week is elixirs. Elixirs, and obviously, in their original sense, elixir. An elixir is a uh, like a potion, mm. like a, something you drink. Basically. Yes, but we're extending it to include all food and drink stuff, which is or is not, but has claimed to be in some way medicinal throughout the yes. ages. Because uh, you know, I mean, we've got an hour to fill. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're not. We're not magician. We're not alchemists. Um, so obviously there's like a really long history of um, claiming that various foods and drinks are are medicinal, probably as old as human history, but certainly mm. as far back as ancient Greece and Rome, um, which, and this actually, the, the model of health that they had back then was um, all about, based around the idea of the humours. Yes. which And that persisted way up until the mid 19th century, in fact. Um, so the idea is that there's four kind of... Um, important fluids in the body which are phlegm blood yellow bile and black bile and they're ba- it's all about their balance with one another and so in fact the word disease means dis-ease i.e. I- a lack of balance between right. these elements within your body um, and so they doctors in the ancient world would prescribe various um normally herbs um in order to promote the production of one type of this fluid or suppress another one in order to redress this balance and get it, as they thought, back in, in harmony again. Um, so Hippocrates, Hippocrates recommended taking poisonous white hellebore for cases of gout. Oh, wow. Because he thought that the best way to cure it was by inducing dysentery. <laughs> um, but white hellebore is, obviously, because it uh, gives you dysentery, it is very poisonous. It can, in fact, kill you. Mm. Um, and, yeah, there are... Just endless examples of this in the ancient world. I mean, the word itself, elixir, is is quite an interesting root. It obviously come. It was you know highly prevalent in the Middle Ages when you start off getting all these alchemists who are experimenting with you know longevity and and also turning lead into gold. Um, and they all actually those kind of words. So elixir, alcohol, alchemy, all kind of have Arabic roots of al, al yeah. um, and come to us from kind of you know the importation of from the east, from kind of the Arabic golden age into the west of people kind of copying their techniques of distillation and right. experimenting with all kinds of different herbs and powders and stuff. And that was the first kind of time we started to get in the west, certainly really high strength alcohols, when before it would have been wine and beer, but never anything kind of distilled um, until that time, really. Because that was coming from a time when alcohol use was still quite prevalent, in the, even in the Islamic world. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, interesting, very interesting. Um, yeah, speaking of alcohol, and again, in the ancient world, um, Pliny the Elder mm. wrote of fried canary and raw owl's eggs as hangover cures. That sounds pretty delicious. It sounds right. <laughs> yeah. uh, he also suggested a hangover preventive, which you could add to your wine, which was roasted sheep's lungs and the ashes of a swallow's beak bruised with myrrh and sprinkled in the wine which he believed would act, act as a preservative against intoxication. Interesting. Um, we'll get... Um, Probably because he didn't want to drink that much more of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thinking, oh, God, <laughs> more swallows beat. More swallows beat bruised with myrrh now. <laughs> um, well, we'll get onto hangover cures a bit more mm. later, but uh, as we're on the subject of alcohol... Yes. What are we drinking today? Today, um, on the subject of elixirs, I've, I've bought what is... I believe probably the only uh, commercially available elixir um, that's still around from kind of the golden ages of elixir, um, which is Elixir Vegetal de la Grande Chartreuse. Now, mm-hmm. people might be familiar with uh, the kind of more widespread chartreuses. You've got green chartreuse and yellow chartreuse, which are um, liqueurs that are about kind of 40% ABV. The original chartreuse um, which is what we're drinking today is the was created as an elixir of long life by the uh chartreuvian monks um in the french alps Mm -hmm. and these um monks have actually they they created their elixir of long life in in 1614 they think um or maybe earlier and they've handed down that recipe uh, for generations um 
you know, from one brother to the nut to another, almost um, mm-hmm. from monk to monk. Uh, today, only two people in the world know the recipe for the elixir of life as it exists in the, in the form of this um, of this particular drink of chartreuse. Mm-hmm. They uh, create it. They there's 130 different plants and vegetables that go into it. Um. And they, they create it by firstly distilling those plants and vegetables. Distillation obviously removes any colour from any liquid, so they then add back the another combination of, of herbs and vegetables as a macerate, which turns the drink this uh, very vegetal. And it is vegetal, yeah. Described it very well, green colour. Um, chartreuse green is, is now actually known as its own colour, which mm. is one of the few, if not the only colour, to be named after a wine rather than... The other way around, yeah. or after a drink, rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, and quite an interesting fact to put people off the scent of ha- what the secret recipe is for this elixir of long life. The monks actually, when they're ordering their plants and their herbs, etc., order um, kind of bogus plants or bogus quantities wow. of plants to put people off the scent, so that you know their suppliers could never guess what the ingredients or the, yeah. the secret recipe is because they. Uh, they just don't know if they're all, if what they've actually ordered is what is going in that drink. Um, wow. So, and we this is very much turbo chartreuse. This one, isn't yes, it? this is sixty nine percent. This one, sixty nine percent. So it is very much well. Certainly, when they originally invented it, people the the monks saw it as a as a tonic, as a medicine that you could apply, mm-hmm. but not you know to your skin if you had kind of yeah. boils or lesions or something. Yeah. Um, but. And they didn't necessarily think people were going to consume it, but then when they realised that people were were drinking it, they sort of thought, okay, we've got an in here, we can market this as an uh, elixir of life. Yeah. Um, that it was originally nowadays at sixty nine percent ABV. It was originally seventy one percent ABV, um, but then the EU decided that, that was an unsafe uh, level of alcohol to be transported along EU road networks, so they banned the transportation of alcohol for consumption above 70 percent. Wow. So the monks very cunningly dropped yeah. <laughs> put a little bit more water and dropped the ABV by two percent to, to yeah. the sixty nine we have today. Um but for all intents and purposes it's an unchanged recipe since the seventeen hundreds. Um just known by those two monks uh and no one else. Amazing. Should we give it a try? Should we give it a go? We've got it in a what's this Infusion. So we've got it. Um, there's there's several ways of drinking it. People because it's is billed as a medicine. People just have it as a kind of teaspoon, like you might do a cough cough syrup. Yeah. People put it on um on a piece of sugar and just eat the sugar cube. We're having it as a as a drink, as kind of like a tonic, I guess. Mm-hmm. We've got it with uh, sugar and sparkling water, um, and it's gone a, a slightly uh, well a very chartreuse green colour um, yeah. less vegetal and kind of more similar to like what we had with the absinthe the other mm. week let's give it a try mm. nice it's good yeah you can certainly taste the uh, the vegetables it is vegetal it is vegetal I love that herbaceous like, people just started drinking it like apropos <laughs> <laughs> it's a real reflection on human nature isn't it that's yeah. why they have to put do not drink on things like bottles of bleach. Yeah. Because otherwise, <laughs> because... people will think, unless instructed otherwise, I'd probably just drink everything. Yeah. And it's actually um, worth mentioning um, for the listener, this actually comes in a lovely little wooden bottle. Yeah. Um, so we had to crack that open and, and w- inside is a, a smaller glass bottle that actually contains the liquid. But it's a lovely little wooden bottle. We'll put a picture up on the on the social media. Um, and like the reason it's, it's in wood is because there's so much actual natural veg- vegetal uh, ingredients in the uh, in the drink itself is that the wood blocks the sunlight from um, hitting all the kind of dregs of veg- vegetal you know herbs and so on that, that are in there and if and spoiling the color of it essentially right, so it doesn't right. turn brown and over as it reacts to sunlight right what are the do we know specific vegetals that are in this well it is in the particular region of uh, the Alps but there's a lot of um, genipe there um, so lots of people think that it's largely genipe based, um, but yeah, it contains 130 different plants, bark, roots, spices, and flowers. Um, nice. And I mean, we're going to be feeling fantastic tomorrow with this much uh, healthy chartreuse. I feel better already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.
Yeah, this was um, very much a time like 16th, 17th century. Herbal medicine was still very much mm. ruling the roost. Yes. There's lots of uh, examples of um, elixirs of one form or another being given uh, back in those days. So when Edward VI, the, the boy king, was yes. dying of tuberculosis, he was given spearmint syrup, red fennel, liverwort, tunip, turnip, dates, raisins, mace and celery mixed with raw meat from a nine-day-old female piglet. <laughs> Up until the raw female piglet element, it actually sounds quite healthy and quite, yeah. quite sensible for its time. Yeah. You know, those are sorts of things that are probably quite good for you. But They had a big... Um, one thing that was important back in those days is it's called the doctrine of signatures. Mm. And it's this idea that um, herbs in particular, but also other um, ingredients which resembled certain body parts were used to treat ailments with those body parts. So Uh red wine, as far back as uh, Galen, I think, was uh, used to treat blood disorders because it looks like blood. Um, Birthwort, as it was called, was taken to help with pregnancies because it resembles the uterus. However, it turned out to be highly carcinogenic (laughs) (laughs) and can damage the kidneys, uh, like fatally. So obviously not used now. Uh, it extends beyond, yeah, like I said, it extends beyond herbs. Um, even now, sometimes you hear about people saying you should eat walnuts because it's good for your brain. Because mm, it, it looks, it like it a, looks brain. a bit like a brain. <laughs> um, and yeah, as as the Christian era came in, it was given like a theological justification. A lot there was this concept of as above, so below, which is the idea that like things from the heavenly sphere are represented on earth, right. as if it's like a clue from God in okay. the shape of a plant. <laughs> you should take this. To, to treat this condition. There's also, um, in the 17th century, an uh, English physician called Jonathan Goddard, uh, and he invented a product called Goddard's Drops, right? which was made up of dried viper, ammonia, which was then called spirit of hartshorn, which is, I think, better. A way better name yeah. than ammonia. Um, and the powdered skull of somebody who had recently been hanged. <laughs> So it's by its very nature a small batch product. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, And then, yeah, as time went on, and I suppose more um, dangerous, more concentrated dangerous um, chemicals became available. Mm. Um, diet supplements became more and more dangerous. So in the 19th century, arsenic and strychnine pills became popular <laughs> diet supplements. The idea being that they sped up your metabolism, like amphetamine does. Um <laughs> But, I mean, if your body's trying to get rid of, like, arsenic, it's probably, your heart probably is going to be a bit fast. A bit, yeah. um, there was also, um, in, there was a German cookbook called Das Kochbuch des Meisters, mm-hmm. which recommended the meat of a hedgehog as useful for two separate health conditions, leprosy and urinary, urinary retention. The book recommends, um, the wording of this really made me laugh, so I wrote it down. The meat of a hedgehog is good for lepers. Those who dry its intestines and grind them to a powder and eat a little of that are made to piss, even if they cannot do so otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. There's there's loads of examples of um, what we now know to be extremely dangerous mm. uh, drugs, in fact, being used as kind of cure-all um, remedies. We've obviously talk, talk, spoken about um, cocaine and Coca-Cola before, but... In that similar era of kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, as people were, were experimenting with all sorts of interesting new chemicals, um, and they were quite often experimenting on the children of the day. There's a few examples. Um, there's Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup for teething children, it was a syrup containing morphine and alcohol. Um, there was also cocaine toothache drops, which were again marketed for teething children. And then uh, Bayer, which is a, a, a chemical and a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. firm that's still in operation today, marketed a children's cough medicine uh, in which the main ingredient was heroin. Right. Bayer, I believe, <laughs> coined the term heroin. Yes, it did. Yes. Wow. Giving it to kids. There you go. That's big pharma for you. That's big pharma for you. A favourite diet of mine from a supposed uh, health, not a food, more of a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> It was uh, the Lucky Strike Diet. Um, this is around 1925. They launched, uh, sorry, in 1928, they launched the they launched an advertising campaign, basically with the intention of making people, specifically women, it was aimed at. Um, every time you feel hungry, 
smoke a fag instead, essentially. Right. Um, and so the, the um, slogan was, for a slender figure, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. Um, and it was, it's considered to have been one of the most successful advertising campaigns of all time. Their sales increased more than 300% in one year. Mm. It reminded <laughs> me a bit of, um, I was in India um, in Goa and we went to a restaurant for breakfast where they had like, so they had Indian breakfast, which would, I guess, be like a dosa or whatever. English breakfast, like, you know, bacon and eggs. Whatever. And then they had a French breakfast option, which was simply a cafe au lait and a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get it enough these days. No. Cigarettes, <laughs> single cigarettes being served at a restaurant. Um, another one from uh, a little a little earlier was um, stewed prunes, mm, which healthy. now, well, yeah, interesting. Food. So nowadays we think of them as uh, having something of a laxative effect, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Um, a common fixture on old people's homes menus. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but in Shakespeare's day, uh, they were considered to ward off sexually transmitted disease. Probably because um, you're pooing yourself so much. <laughs> you, can't, you, can't, you can't have sex if you're on the toilet. That's true, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so much so they were commonly served in brothels, though, which would defeat the point because uh, they still want people to have sex. Yeah, that's you, bad for business. You know what, yeah. yeah. Um, Shakespeare frequently used the term stewed prunes as a euphemism for brothels or prostitutes. Oh. Um, Didn't you hem- that at school? No, exactly. <laughs> Henry the Fourth, Part One, Falstaff insults someone by saying, "There's no more faith in thee than in a stewed prune." <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, however, elixirs don't always take the form of food or drink items. Mm. Sometimes they are in the realm of the living. Oh, really? I refer to the tapeworm diet. You heard of this? <laughs> I have heard of this. <laughs> This became popular in the Victorian era. Yeah, of course. Um, and, I mean, this says it already, but the beauty idea at that time was modelled after consumptives, i.e. people who had tuberculosis. Right. So, because they had pale skin, but with red cheeks, red lips, uh, dilated pupils, presumably very thin. Um, and this was also a time when women either strived or you know, were told by men to strive for a 16-inch waist. Oh my god, that's horrible. Um, that was considered the ideal, apparently. Uh, so dieters would swallow um, cysts or eggs um, from uh, beef tapeworms, which was usually in the form of a pill. And the theory was the tapeworms would, you know, reach maturity and your intestines absorb the food you're eating because they obviously do make you lose weight when you have a tapeworm. Um, and then once someone reached their desired weight, they took an antiparasitic pill, which hopefully would kill off the tapeworm <laughs> but very often um so even if that did then apparently excreting a tapeworm can cause abdominal problems um rectal complications mm. um but often it didn't work at all and so they had to get the tapeworm out by other means tapeworms are enormous as well like, yeah it's not a nice thing to pass or to have extracted by other means no so other methods of removal included lowering a cylinder of food into the stomach like a lure. <laughs> they try to fish it out of them, which caused many patients to choke to death in itself. Yeah. Um, and, and this is my favourite. holding a, So because they were beef tapeworms, presumably they were the type that live in cows, and there was mm. this suggestion that they had a fondness for um, bovine lactose, which is, I think, probably complete nonsense. But they would... Uh, hold a glass of milk, one glass of milk beside the patient's mouth, and another glass of milk beside the eight... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they would hold one glass of milk beside the patient's mouth, and another glass of milk beside the patient's anus, and wait for the tapeworm to emerge from one end or the other. Good God. <laughs> I couldn't find any examples of, uh, any accounts of how successful this was. <laughs> I guess possibly not. But then, you know, you wonder how many of the things that we take now, that we think of, some, certain people think of as health foods, and will turn out to be absolute codswallop. Almost all of them, I think. Probably. Yeah. The whole uh, superfood industry is almost based on codswallop. Mm. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say about um, 
So superfoods, as you say, it's basically a complete marketing scam. Yeah. <laughs> um, the earliest kind of modern example was a marketing campaign from the um, United Fruit Company, mm. which is in America. Yes. It's kind of like a modern American version of like the East India Company. Yeah, they're extremely evil. In 2007, when the, by which time they were known as Chiquita, they actually ended up pleading guilty to aiding and abetting a terrorist organisation because yes. they were smuggling arms to a Colombian paramilitary group. And yeah, they had, um, you know, they wielded great power across Latin America and the Caribbean through their trade networks, which were basically all centred on bananas. Yeah. And they, it's because of them that the term banana republic came into, yes. you know, um, kind of taking advantage of these countries who relied on their natural resources. And there was huge, they were hugely involved in the American anti-communist movement in yeah. Latin America by, because obviously they didn't want peasants to have control of the farms that they worked on because they were owned yeah. by United Fruit, right? So United Fruit kind of backed various... Or supported, uh, you know, American-backed coups and kind of uh, reactionary regimes to ensure that the people couldn't own the bananas that they were making, yeah. and that uh, United Fruit got to continue shipping them around the world at vastly discounted prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one, well, I suppose one of their more benign legacies in that context is, so in the early twentieth century, you know, they had lots of bananas they needed to shift, mm. presumably in America, uh, but no one had really ever seen one in the USA, um, in North America, at any rate. So um, they started publishing these pamphlets um, called things like The Food Value of the Banana, and they suggested adding bananas in your cereal at breakfast and salads for lunch, fried with meat for dinner. It's interesting. I What, what I thought was interesting, I looked at one of these pamphlets, and they do like a banana in three stages, and it's like ripe, medium, and then what they clearly think is unripe, which is just a tiny bit of green at the end mm. where you peel it and they say when it's in this stage you should use it as a vegetable and like <laughs> cook it <laughs> which i think maybe fair enough for a plantain or something but yeah i wonder if maybe ancient bananas were well the bananas back then were actually quite different to the bananas we have Less now spread um, to the help. Right. yeah and also there was a whole in the i think it was the late 40s early 50s there was because all bananas are basically clones of each other mm. and there was um an infectious kind of banana disease that right. attacked the global banana crop and crop and essentially destroyed that um that ancient banana and they then uh, subsequently bred a new kind of version of banana yeah. that's completely different and people say that you know obviously like banana the when you get banana flavored sweets they don't actually taste like banana and people say that that's actually the flavor of the original banana oh right from beforehand when they were making the sweets uh, out of the 40s and the 50s that's interesting um and that's what we're tasting but who knows very interesting yeah um yeah so they um it as part of a bid to get people to eat bananas they essentially branded it as a superfood as we call it now and so they hired, in the 20s, they hired doctors to publicly recommend that babies should consume mashed bananas. They came up, well, a doctor called George Harrop came up with a banana diet, which recommended taking six bananas with four glassfuls of skimmed milk each day. So divided into three meals. Um, one, one of those meals, you're allowed to have cabbage or lettuce with it. <laughs> the rest of the time, just bananas and milk. Um, That's quite good. Days. Quite that. yeah. I love bananas, I love milk. Yeah, but if that was it for 10 days? Maybe not. <laughs> um, but, I mean, clearly over the last century, I was going to say some people's nutritional knowledge clearly hasn't, or nutritional instincts haven't improved mm. that much. Clearly you're one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in 2008, um, a new banana diet called the Morning Banana Diet took Japan by storm. Oh. And it subsequently kind of spread a bit to the West. Uh, it goes like this. Breakfast. Consumption of unlimited bananas with room temperature water or milk. Um, and so it technically allows unlimited banana consumption. Supposedly a healthy person can consume at least seven and a half bananas before reaching the recommended level of potassium. I can't imagine eating seven and a half bananas in the morning. Because <laughs> <laughs> lunch and dinner, you can have whatever you want, as long as you eat absolute fuck ton of bananas. As long as of bananas. You can have one or more bananas as a snack between meals, but no other desserts are permitted. Nothing is eaten after 8pm. And the dieter must go to bed by midnight. Hmm. Mm. Sounds like quite an interesting diet. I don't know which I'd prefer, that one or the uh, Hunter S. Thompson one from the previous <laughs> week. But... 
Both yeah. sound pretty, pretty Hunter gross. S. Thompson's diet is a bit more varied. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> blueberries are another one, mm, which th- yeah. their popularity soared in the early 21st century. There's some, there was some research which suggested they had unusually high antioxidant levels. But then that has actually now been rescinded, that, yes. those findings. And they're no more nutritious than most other fruits or vegetables, really. But... Yeah, one of the um, more famously good for you well, not vegetables, I guess herb, is uh, spinach, yeah. which people claim it's really high in iron and, and lots of its marketing has been based around its iron content over the years, particularly like well, famously Popeye and yeah. being as strong as Popeye because he eats loads of spinach. But my understanding of the, the spinach uh, story is that actually the iron content was misrepresented by a rounding error in someone's oh, really? mouth to be like 100 times higher than any other fruit or herb or vegetable yeah um simply as a mistake he, he put his decimal point in the wrong place and it's actually about the same as any other kind of fruit or veg right yeah so complete lie. yeah <laughs> complete dog shit um but yeah i mean we tend to look at these and think you know silly people in the past mm. who didn't have it had had a lesser good understanding of science and stuff but some of them persist like you know um, cranberry juice for UTIs, for example, yeah. honey and lemon for colds, yeah. um, chicken soup for colds and stuff as well. So either there's some truth in some of it, or because there, mu- think... there must be some truth in some of these things, because yeah. not when it's a marketing scam like the no. superfoods, but like you know, it's thousands of years of uh, of wisdom mm. doesn't just suddenly get replaced by. I think just generally eating fruit and veg and vitamins is a good thing for your health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're feeling under the weather, having a bit of lemon and honey probably isn't a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just kind of kind of quite comforting. It's like mm. the chicken soup. Yeah. Makes you feel, Makes you feel great. a bit better. Someone who was sort of contemporaneous with um, United Fruits was Henry Ford. Mm, yes. Who, We've, of course, been to his museum. Yes, we have, yeah. <laughs> um, so, obviously, it was a lot of things. Um Arch industrialist kind of invented modern mass production, yeah. um, everything like that you know, all the legacies of that. Massive anti Semite, of course, of course, as well. Um, he also had very odd views on diet. He was all, everyone in that era had odd views yeah, on diet. <laughs> I think, like, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like <laughs> with someone like him, it might just be like, you know, you've got all the money in the world, mm. you don't really need to worry about that, so you yeah. just worry about. Something else, yeah, yeah. Make something else, it's like Howard Hughes, sort yeah, of Howard Hughes, yeah. Um, so he was very anti meat and very anti. He described the, the cow as the crudest machine in the world. <laughs> I don't know quite what he meant by that, but <laughs> no. uh, and he said chicken is only fit for hawks. Mm, that's quite a good line, actually. Um, he also went through a carrot phase in which he would um, largely eat carrots, wander up to a subordinate's desk pull a couple of carrots out of a jacket pocket, offer one to the employee, but who presumably have to take it, felt compelled to take it, <laughs> board or take the other, and then they'd sit there munching carrots while talking over business at hand. Mm. And during this time, he held a, um, a dinner, which was a 14-course carrot dinner, where every single course <laughs> was, um, was carrot-based. So you had carrot soup, obviously first course, Yeah. carrot mousse, carrot salad, pickled carrots, Carrots au gratin, carrot loaf, carrot ice cream, um, accompanied by a lot of carrot juice. Yeah. To be fair to carrots, carrots. I mean, carrots are nice. They are nice and they are versatile. Yeah. Um, I once had had a carrot in a restaurant that will not be named, but it was kind of quite a posh uh, tasting menu type affair. And the intro course was a raw carrot covered in coffee grounds. And it was rubbish. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that sounds rubbish, isn't it? No, I mean, at least I could have cooked the carrot in like some butter, and then it would probably be quite nice. But a raw carrot. Do you reckon they just forgot to do one of the courses that day? Like, but maybe. <laughs> give me that carrot. You get out the Henry Ford cookbook. <laughs> yeah. He also he refused to eat bread fresh out of the oven and only ate stale bread. No, that's that's the worst kind of bread. Yeah, fresh bread is the best bread. He never drank cold water. It was always room temperature. Like Tommy Wise. No, that's hot water. <laughs> <laughs> um. We, I know we mentioned carrots uh, mm. in another episode, but and, and the urban legend of them helping yes. see them in the dark, that they help you see in the dark. Did we talk about where that came from? I can't remember. But I don't Blitz. think we did, no. So it was um, in the, during 1940, um, in the Blitz, the Luftwaffe would 
obviously attack at night when it was they were harder to detect. Um, and so blackouts were imposed in, in reaction to this by the government. And the RAF, during this time, had developed a secret radar technology which was good enough to see the planes and shoot them down. But the Germans didn't know about this and they didn't want them to find out about it. And so to keep the secret, the British government dreamed up this... Um, poster campaign which claimed that it was because pilots were eating so many carrots <laughs> that they were able to see in the dark and spot the Luftwaffe uh, approaching so there you go and yeah. in truth they do contain high levels of beta carotene which is turned into vitamin A which helps synthesize a pigment in the eye however they don't eat it in the dark no <laughs> Henry Ford, incidentally, was also obsessed with soybeans, mm. um, and he made a car out of soybean products. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. That's sort of a, a mod, uh, no, an early version of like an eco car. Yeah, um, so it was probably still run on uh, oil, though, I guess. Though. Well, hemp oil, so it was pretty, yeah, pretty good, eco-friendly. Yeah. So it was, yeah, made from agricultural plastic derived from soybeans, wheat, and corn. Um, Lighter and more fuel efficient than a metal body. Yeah, I mean that's quite. What if we? What if he continued down that kind of thought process? How different the modern world might be in terms of. Pollution. We spend a bit less time being a mad racist, <laughs> and more time thinking being about being an environmentalist. Yeah, exactly. Talking of oil, mm. um, one of the kind of more famous terms, almost for an elixir or a, a cure all type thing, is snake oil. Yes, um, which particularly has... when it's. Supposedly a fake thing. Yeah, exactly. It's it's basically a fake thing. Yeah, it has a connotation of being, um, you know, yeah, illegitimate. But actually, it turns out that snake oil was in fact a legitimate medicine. It just got transformed into this kind of uh, illegitimate image by bad, uh, bad eggs. So the original, (laughs) the original, um, the original snake oil was. the oil of the Chinese water snake, which was bought to the US by Chinese railway workers mm. back in kind of the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, where all the, a lot of this stuff seems to be going on. Um, but that Chinese water snake is really rich in omega-free acids. And, you know, the workers who are obviously have a, a pretty tough life used to rub it on their joints after a hard day, helps treat arthritis. You know, as we do now, it's similar to like cod liver oil or mm-hmm. omega-free. They would consume it and it would actually genuinely help to make them feel better after a a tough day of building railroads Mm -hmm. um however the bad egg uh is a man who came along and and almost ruined it for the snake oil brand um is a man named clark stanley (laughs) (laughs) who's uh known as that's the name sounds the wrong way around stanley clark clark stanley yeah well his nickname was the rattlesnake king which is very cool um, Bob Mortimer, the cockroach. Yeah, the cockroach. <laughs> but he was a late nineteenth-century cowboy um, who he alleged that rattlesnake oil was just as good, and he used to uh, go to big kind of cra- uh, fairs and attract a big crowd at these fairs and kill rattlesnakes with his hands and squeeze out their juice, their wow. juices, claiming that the oil could treat all sorts of ailments, you know, pain, arthritis, rheumatism. Um, and you know, pretty much everything known to man could be cured by this juice that he was squeezing out of uh, out of these rattlesnakes with his bare hands. Um, the problem was, you know, a rattlesnake is not the same as a Chinese water snake. It has no medicinal qualities. There was no omega three in it, um, and the the oil that he was actually selling from his stand, obviously not the stuff he was squeezing, but the stuff that you know the, the other bottles off to the side, turned out just to be essentially. Um, mineral oil which is the type of oil you get from under the ground right. similar to kind of pet petroleum that we might use in vaseline and things mm-hmm. like that um so he really kind of ruined the the term snake oil and took it from a kind of cod liver oil equivalent which is fairly good connotations yeah. to meaning something that's complete nonsense complete tripe and a load of uh essentially fake interesting um, thing did he get caught in his, when he was operating great question um he was actually um in 1916, Clark Stanley, Rattlesnake King, um, was found. His concoction of snake oil was examined and found to be of no value um, following the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act a few years earlier in the USA. 
So it was found to contain, as I mentioned, mineral oil, um, a, a random fatty compound that people thought might be beef, um, capsic, uh, capsicum, um, so yeah, bell pepper basically, and turpentine. Um, and he was fined $20 for his fraudulent claims, which is approximately $470 in 2019. So Probably basically got away with it. Probably basically got away with it. Um, but I would suggest that, like, certainly of the day, just murdering rattlesnakes with your bare hands was probably a good enough, like, attraction of its own. To be fair, I would, pay, I would pay for that. Yeah, you could sell, like, a fridge magnet or a, you know, so, a mug. I think we can exonerate him. <laughs> <laughs> it's crimes. Um, we just took a little break there to try it because um, we wanted to boil a kettle to have this chartreuse in a tea, which is another traditional mm. way of having it, which is nice. It's very nice, yeah. It's like a hot toddy almost. Mm. Um, speaking of Chinese water snakes yes. and China, um, China, ancient China in particular, is a extremely rich vein of form in the world of elixirs with hilarious consequences, <laughs> let's say, or unintended consequences. Um, so the, the 24 Histories, which is a dynastic um, record from mm. uh, ancient China, records numerous Chinese emperors, nobles and officials who died from taking elixirs to prolong their lifespans. <laughs> So you had the founder of the Qin dynasty, Qin Shi Huang, mm. um, is thought to have died after taking an elixir containing mercury, because a lot of them contained like they metal love mercury, poison, don't they? mercury yeah. and um, lead and arsenic. And stuff. Yeah. Um, the, there's a book called uh, Cantong Chi, which is by someone called uh, Wei Boyang. Apologies for all my mm. pronunciation <laughs> yet again. But, it's regarded as the world's first alchemy book. And yeah, it listed mercury and lead as the prime ingredients. Really. Yeah. Another one was um, sulfur and also cinnabar, which I believe cinnabar, are yeah. both um, extremely toxic mm. and certainly not the ingredients of immortality. Yeah, I read an account of, um, I didn't write it down, but um, an emperor who was taking a lot of this elixir. Uh, and then one day, um, <laughs> I think the description was, his neck and chest became like continuous. Like he swelled up so much. There was no, um, his neck like disappeared, I guess. And uh, that, well, after he died, his blood was found to contain like a concentrated cinnabar. Um, yeah, at least five Tang Dynasty emperors mm. were inca- incapacitated or killed by immortal- immortality elixirs. And there was a, um, so they, they, at the time they just explained all these things away. Um, so like they died of natural causes unrelated to the... Well, they recognised, because the evidence was so strong that mm. it had these negative effects on people. But they just said... So, for example, there was a, a text called Records of the Rock Chamber, um, and it described the uh, it described away the effects as follows. It said, After taking an elixir, if your face and body itch as though insects were crawling over them, if your hands and feet swell dropsically, if you cannot stand the smell of food and bring it up after you've eaten it, if you feel as though you're going to be sick most of the time, if you experience weakness in the forelimbs, if you have to go, to the, if you often have to go to the latrine, or if your head or stomach violently ache, do not be alarmed or disturbed. Disturbed. All these effects are merely proofs that the elixir you are taking is successfully dispelling your latent disorders. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, I found an interesting thing about uh, elixirs in ancient China as well. Um, in the uh, Qin Dynasty. Um, an alchemist, uh, Zhu Fu, was sent with 500 boys and 500 girls to the Eastern Seas to try and find the elixir. But he never came back, and they say that instead of finding the elixir, he found Japan instead. Ah. And that's where the Japanese come from in Chinese mythology. Probably not in Japanese mythology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I imagine they were there first, weren't they? In yeah, Japanese <laughs> I imagine they would. Um, another interesting one was a character called Po Chu Yi, um, who was an ancient Chinese alchemist. Um, so, as with many Chinese ancient Chinese as we've spoken about, they were fascinated with finding the elixir. Um, and there was actually rumours at the time that, that this particular gentleman was destined to have long life. So that's why he thought he was destined to succeed. Um, however, he actually he did live for a long time, and he outlived all of his contemporary alchemists, and that was simply because he never 
got high of his own supply. Right. He didn't taste the elixirs he made. <laughs> and, he, and he wrote a poem about it, which is quite nice. Um, and it's it's a mournful poem because of his he's mourning his failure, but actually it's almost celebratory, the fact that he's managed to get old. Um, and it starts with, My grey hairs in autumn multiply, Cinnabar and the fire melted away. I could not save the young maid and stop my turning to a frail old man. Um, and then he reflects on reflects on his dead friends. At leisure, I think of old friends. They seem to appear before my eyes. All fell ill or died suddenly. None of them lived through middle age. Only I have not taken the elixir. Let yet contrarily live on an old man. <laughs> so despite all his... You asked about an inkling, but that was why. <laughs> despite all his... Uh... All his efforts, he couldn't understand why he lived to old age when all his friends who were drinking these toxic chemicals were t- suddenly dying at a young age. Wow. One of history's great dieters um, was Lord Byron, mm. obsessed about his, over his weight um, and his appearance in general. But he pioneered um, something called the water and vinegar diet. It's kind of what it says in the center. <laughs> drinking water with apple cider vinegar, which is an interesting one because lots of people to this day think that cider vinegar is an elixir. Yeah. It's yeah, very it much is. sold yeah. as a health yeah. supplement. Very much so. Um, and he also would eat little other than potatoes soaked in vinegar. And he was accused of setting a bad example to the young people who copied. So obviously he was a big celebrity. And young people copied him. And um, he was accused of making girls sicken and waste away. Although I feel like that might have been the syphilis. Than... <laughs> <laughs> he was imparting. Yes. He said, um, he said, a woman should never be seen eating or drinking unless it be lobster salad and champagne. The only truly feminine and becoming viands. Mm. There you go. Feminist icon, George Byron. <laughs> Does it again? Talking of people who, uh, well certainly of that era, and who claimed to have the cure for long life. And an interesting fella is the uh, Comte de Saint-Germain, mm. who um, was certainly a, a, a large figure in the kind of aristoc- uh, aristocratic courts of Europe during the uh, 1700s. And the records we have suggest his date was that his date of birth was the late 1600s, although some believe that uh, his longevity reaches back to the time of Christ. Um, people say this gentleman was seen many times throughout history, appearing to be about 45 years old, and he was known by many of the famous figures of European history, including Casanova, Voltaire, King Louis XV, and Catherine the Great, among others. There's um, any distinguishing features, or the most well, generic-looking man. <laughs> it was just the most generic-looking man. Um, it was also said to be present at the Council of Nicaea in the year three twelve. So they distinguished him by his talents more than his looks, in the fact that he could speak several languages fluently. He was he could play the violin like a virtuoso. He was an accomplished painter. Um, and wherever he travelled, he set up an elaborate lab- laboratory, uh, which we think is to pursue his uh, alchemy work. Mm. Um, although, you know, none of those things would be on the realm of possibility of just one man being quite good at several things. Yeah. You, you know, being a polyglot. Especially in those days. <laughs> Especially in those days. People of a certain class were educated. Yeah. You know, all those things. He once met the mistress of King Louis XV of France, Uh, who at the time was an elderly countess. Um, And she said she'd known a Comte de Saint-Germain while in Venice in the year 1710. And when she met the Count again, she was astonished to see that he hadn't appeared to have aged a bit. And she asked him if it was his father who she'd met in Venice uh, 40 years earlier. And he said, no, madame, I myself was living in Venice at the end of the last and the beginning of this century. Mm. I had the honour to pay you court then. And she said, that is impossible. Um, The Comte de Saint-Germain I knew knew in those days was at least 45 years old, and you are that age at present. Mm. And he says, Madame, I'm very old, with a knowing smile. Um, (laughs) She said, but you must be nearly 100. He said, that is not impossible. Um, And then mysteriously disappeared. So, I mean, obviously it's nonsense. The real Comte de Saint-Germain 
they think was born in about 1691 and died in about 1784. So, you know, on that stretch was just over 90, but which is pretty old for his for pretty his good. day. But he, he certainly didn't look like he was 45. Do we have any information on what he was huffing to keep so young? Uh, probably mercury. Right. <laughs> <laughs> do One of the most enduring um, categories of elixirs is the hangover cure. Of course. We touched on earlier. Plenty of the elders, owl eggs and, uh, was it, roasted canary. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a whole uh, a whole genre of mm. supposed cure, hangover cures. Um, in English, the saying still very much is hair of the dog. Yes. Which originates as, uh, as a cure for rabies, supposedly. Oh. So the hair of the dog that bit you, if you get bitten by a rabid dog... Eat its you're hair. Supposed to, well, you're supposed to, <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to take... Uh, one of its hairs and put it in the wound. Oh, uh, okay. That's, um, that's weird. What I said. Which I think, I mean, I'll just shock you here and say we're not qualified to give medical advice, but I think we can safely say that one doesn't work. Mm. If you get bitten by a rabid dog, please, please do seek medical advice. Yes. However, this thing that you sometimes see, you know, like doctors, in inverted commas, medical professionals yeah. saying, oh, you shouldn't, if you're hungover, don't drink. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't help. And I think it's disingenuous because it absolutely works. It's the only hangover cure I know of that does work. Yeah. Like, it's fantastic. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's the healthiest thing to do. Oh, it's certainly not good for you. Yeah. It, it completely works. It yeah. works every time. It's completely <laughs> yeah. foolproof. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the hair of the dog, great hangover cure. Mm. Um, historically, um, across the world, you know, there have been countless others. I mean, there's a whole category of cocktails called corpse revivers. Yes. Um, which have various recipes. There's also the um, prairie oyster, mm. which is a raw egg, Worcestershire sauce, vinegar, salt and pepper. Um, there's, I love this. In Genghis Khan's time, mm. uh, the Mongols would eat pickled sheep's eyeballs as a hangover cure. And to this day, in modern Mongolia, um, you can have pickled sheep's eyeballs chased with a tomato juice, and it's called a Mongolian Mary. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I think it's like, you know, it's probably just a massive shock to the system that eating that much like vinegar and eyeball. I think that but, I was thinking this about why do so many because a lot of hangover cures contain a raw egg. Yeah, and I just think it's the obviously a lot of stuff contains raw egg, but it's the very slight shock value of that probably makes you think it takes your mind off. It's like else. jumping into like ice water yeah. is a great hangover cure. Exactly. So is eating a raw egg or something weird and vinegary like a pickled eye. Yeah, yeah. There's also so there's some going back in the corridors of time that we probably wouldn't do now. So. 17th century herbalist Nicholas Culpepper, it's a good name for a herbalist, um, advised stuffing your nasal passages with tree ivy, which can't be good. No, it doesn't. My nose is itching just thinking about it. <laughs> that's, that's horrible. Um, I love this one, though. In Puerto Rico, apparently, they rub slices of lemon into their armpits before they start drinking. That's a great idea. Supposedly to counteract dehydration. Yeah. Um, I used to subscribe to the, you know, line your stomach with some milk to... Mm. keep you sober uh, but I think that's just nonsense isn't it yeah I think I guess lining yourself with any kind of just have food eat, stuff or nutrition beforehand yeah. yeah it'll soak it up a bit I like this Puerto Rico one the opinion is split on whether you're supposed to rub the lemon on both armpits or only on I quote your drinking arm <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure if I've got a drinking arm no I like to mix it up a bit I mean I'm right handed so I predominantly would go right but but then you're right handed gets tired if you're standing yeah, exactly. beer, sometimes you might swap it over to your left have a couple of cheeky sips out of that hand in the modern day, um, there's quite a lot of like hangover pills. I don't know if you saw oh. relatively recently, as recently as last year, there was a, a German brand, I believe. Oh, no, sorry, a Swedish brand um, called simply Miracle, M-Y-R-K-L. Right. Miracle. Um, which claims to break down, is a pre-drinking pill, and it claims to break down 70% of alcohol in your system after... 60 minutes um, but 
the company behind it, I think, only suggests that this will counteract the effects of two to three pints, which I would suggest (laughs) is not actually going to cause that much of a hangover anyway. Um, Certainly not enough to spend north of 40 quid on a pack of pills. That is not hangover. Um, Whereas the idea that if you take more pills, so let's say if you're feeling the effects of... 12 pints. Yeah. You can take four pills. You've got to take them beforehand as well. Right, okay. Like 12 hours beforehand. So you've got to do a lot more preparation than probably most people do before a session. Yeah. Um, and it was based on one study in which uh, people were only given between 50 and 90 mils of spirits based on their weight. So, you know, that's basically a double or maybe two doubles of a spirit mixer. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> And apparently reduced the blood alcohol content in there in them, but I mean, obviously it did. One study, not the best result, but certainly it doesn't. It's not proven to counteract the effects of a mega drinking session. Still beyond medical science. Still beyond medical science. Although known alcoholic and friend of the pod, Ernest Hemingway, mm. he relied on actually a combination of a couple of things we talked about. So the Bloody Mary tomato juice mixed with beer, hair nice. of the dog. Love it. Love it. Love it. I love a like a a beer with a bit of something else in it. So mm. like a Michelada. Michelada, sure. yeah. So good. Um speaking of friends of the show and famous alcoholics, um Hunter S. Thompson's hangover cure, mm. as we covered his daily routine last week. <laughs> yes. Supposedly his hangover cure was twelve amyl nitrites in conjunction with as many beers as necessary. <laughs> the British Medical Journal peer-reviewed and actually quite quite well-respected, suggests there is perhaps... Well, it says this about miracle cures. Any treatment... Any claims that a treatment is 100% safe and effective must always be viewed with intense scepticism. There is no such thing as a miracle cure. With one exception. <laughs> and that's physical activity. Ah, okay. Getting exercise, according to the British Medical Journey yeah. Journal, is the miracle cure. So, get outside and walk. Stop ingesting pigeon beaks and mercury. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, it is probably better advice. There are some places, obviously, like these extreme examples that we've mm. been giving, um, are some of them very outlandish. In general, the, the idea, obviously, that what you eat has an impact on your health is not not outlandish. No, um, but there's been a lot of. Um, research into weather so there, there are areas of the world known as blue zones which is where people live for much longer on average yes. than in other places and so people are trying to figure out why whether is it just genetic reasons or lifestyle these places tend to have um strong communities uh not ma- not that much stress you know they don't have high powered yeah. sort of jobs that they're worrying about all the time um and a lot of kind of moderate physical activity. You know, they're not going to the gym and stuff, but they're just on their feet a lot, mm. walking around, you know, in the way that traditional lifestyles were more. Um, they have a purpose in their community. So they're like, uh, you know, the people who do certain handicrafts in these communities, they don't just stop when they hit 65. They just carry on doing it because it's just what they do in their yeah. thing. And so it's, yeah. you know, they're not getting up at stupid o'clock to do it or commuting or whatever, but they just, they carry on doing it. Um, but lots of research has gone into whether diet has um, any impact on this. So in general, they eat less saturated fats, yeah, more pulses, mm. less processed food, obviously. A lot of fish, a lot of olive oil, um, a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables than the average places. Yeah. One of these places is Okinawa in Japan, which is a, an island um, in Japan. Yes, Karate Kid 2. Yes, very same. <laughs> <laughs> uh and they, they call their diet... So they very much have a conception that their food is the reason why. So in Okinawa, they have... I think it's something like five times the number of centenarians than mainland oh, Japan, wow. which is already a very long-lived place. Um, they have a word for their diet, nuchi gusui. Again, probably saying that wrong, but medicine for life. And so they have this perception it plays a big role in their good health. Um but there are differences. So traditionally, the Japanese diet contains a lot of rice. Okinawa, they instead they eat this um, sweet potato, 
It's like a purple sweet potato. Mm. Um, and they only have 30% of the sugar and 15% of the grains of the average Japanese diet. But they do eat more pork than the Japanese average. But they abide by a principle, which is actually an ancient Confucian principle, which is that you should eat until you're 80% full. Yeah, that makes so sense. So eight-tenths full, as it sometimes mm. is expressed. I feel like good advice, easier said than done. Hard to stick to, yeah. yeah. I normally eat until I'm about 12-tenths full. I would agree <laughs> with that, yeah. 120% full. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, maybe there's something in it. Having, having said that, another thing that suggests their diet is important, supposedly in recent years, since the Western diet has... Um, become more prominent in Okinawa they still have a huge number of centenarians that's the right mm. word isn't it? but um, their average life expectancy has actually fallen significantly it's dropping because they now have hamburgers yeah yeah. so there you go it's yet another thing the west has ruined yeah although Jap- Japan's ageing population is a bad thing yeah in some ways so yeah let them die <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are um some of these things, which are kind of ancient um, wisdom, has held them to be very beneficial for your health, which people now, even with modern science, are returning to a little bit. So I was in Northumberland the other week, oh. and I went foraging in Kyoto Forest with a guy called Linus, who is from a company called Northern Wilds, who do like foraging tours. And um, he was saying that, you know, we have... Um, as a society in Western Europe in particular, probably America as well, we have mushroom fear. Like people are yes. afraid of going to pick mushrooms because they just think it could so easy to You're kind of told that, you. aren't you? You're told don't don't go foraging for mushrooms unless you know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. So it puts I mean, people off trying. Good reason as yeah. well. You do yeah. need to know what you're doing because yeah. a lot there are a lot of them out there which can seriously mm. kill you mm. in like very horrifying ways. But um, you know, if you have the knowledge so in in his opinion, I think there's probably something in this, the reason why in Western Europe and in America we have this is because as societies, we killed off the people with herbalist knowledge yes. in the witch trials, yes. basically. And so people like that were, deemed, were treated with suspicion, even the ones who weren't killed. Um, <clears throat> but now, so certain, certain mushrooms, so for example, turkey tail mushrooms, which we foraged and had a nice little tea out of, um are being used in countries... So in Japan is one of the countries where, obviously, they have very highly developed medicine, but they also have less of a suspicion of complementary medicine. Yes. So alongside chemotherapy, there's a compound from these mushrooms which is being used as a treatment for cancer. So there is... Again, it shouldn't... Even though, obviously, lots of the stuff that we've mentioned has been insane <laughs> uh a lot of this stuff does come from like you know we're talking thousands of years of um of wisdom yeah learning what you can and can't eat what helps and what doesn't what doesn't there must have been something in medicine you know pre the modern medicine age even if some of it's a bit wider the mark yeah can't have definitely. all been completely wrong definitely well things like um willow is a kind of a famous cure-all and is now is the main prime ingredient aspirin you turned it, yeah. a, you know, an ancient remedy into a, yeah. a pill that's probably the second or third most popularly consumed drug on the planet in terms mm-hmm. of like tablets that you would take after yeah. paracetamol and ibuprofen, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. So there is definitely something in that kind of ancient wisdom mm-hmm. element and and try you know things that have worked for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, mushrooms, not mercury, I guess. Yeah. I feel like we should do a um, a whole episode just on mushrooms at some mm. point down the line because there's so much to say about them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but for now, well, I think we should wrap it up for this week. Definitely. So, yeah, as always, uh, please like, subscribe, follow, tell your friends and family, tell your enemies, tell anyone you know. <laughs> um, spread the good word. And, yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye.